from KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, Massachusetts, WMBR in Cambridge, and biketalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hey, Nick. Welcome to Bike Talk. Thanks, Taylor. How are you? I'm doing good. Our first interview this week is uh, with Craig De La Pena of the Mass Central Rail Trail. This is a great story because it's 104 miles of car-free trail. How they got that done, I don't know. It's incredible. Well, Craig has been fighting for to convert rail trails for his entire career. He's got this Norwatic network that's releasing a report about what the Mass Central Rail Trail will do for Massachusetts. It's going to bring in money. In the report, I think it's going to say that it's going to bring in $200 million a year. Wow. Because you know why? Because people who ride bikes spend money. And that's an important point to make because a lot of people don't really understand that. Here we go. The idea of a trail is starting to take hold. Well, right now we're at 55 miles open out of the 104 miles. There's about 20 miles under construction right now as we sit here. And uh, there's about 20 miles that are additional that are in a protected status. That is to say they're uh, preserved by a local land trust, a municipality, or a state agency. And they're not going to be lost. DOT knows, and they realize that this is the future. These are pathways that that lend themselves, let's call them to being the, the bunny slopes on a ski resort. You're not going to teach people to ski on quadruple diamond uh, slopes. You're going to teach them to bike in their communities on rail trails. And there's almost um, within 150 miles of my office here, there's about, I don't know, maybe close to 200 trail projects under development. This is the densest network of dead steam railroad corridor in North America. There is nothing else like this anywhere else. And these are not obscure coal mine branch lines where no one lives. These are, they go right to the heart of communities, village centers that used to have big, huge mill complexes that are now apartments, condos, startup businesses. Uh, This is the way to bring bikes back into communities. The stars are aligning. And I won't get too deep into that today, just to talk about the Mass Central which is 104 miles from Boston to Northampton, two-thirds of the way across the state. And so they commissioned a report during the pandemic that would uh, was a feasibility study to look at, can it actually be reassembled? And they determined it could be. But, and this is the big but, they knew all the heavy lifting projects are left, and the big elephant in the room question is, well, what would it be worth if it was completed? No one ever got the answer to that question because the question was never formally asked. And then about a year later, DOT came up with the feasibility study that said it could be reassembled, but it's going to be complicated, but we need to know what it would be worth. And so we, Nowatic Network, in the summer of 2022, commissioned a RFP request for proposals to find a consultant who could answer that big elephant in the room question. What would it be worth? We know that in the mid-teens of the 21st century, 
that the uh, group called Parks Trails New York, who's the advocacy organization for New York State, they commissioned a report that asked the question of the Erie Canal Trail. Well, here this thing is 325 miles long and it's three quarters built. What is it gonna cost to finish it? But we need to know what it's producing. We want DOT to finish it, but we wanna show them that it's worthwhile. And so that report came out in 2014 and it showed that the one trail, the Erie Canal Trail, was producing $250 million a year to the state of New York. That so stunned the governor of New York that they commissioned um, something called Empire State Trail. That was commissioned in um, 2017 to order DOT to begin construction. 400 miles in four years. They finished on time, under budget, I think, at the end of 2020. And so we are modeling our RFP that asked our big question after what happened in New York. But we have some basic metrics that we know that are in the report. That it's going to produce between four to five million users a year. It's going to connect with 17 to 20 trails that are under development partially open in lots of places. But as I said before, this is the densest network of dead steam railroad corridor. They didn't go to coal mine branch lines. They went to where people live, work, and play. This network is being developed slowly, unbeknownst to most people. They don't even see it. It's just very much slow motion. So this trail, four to five million users a year, interconnecting with 17 other, 17 to 20 other trails. There's going to be over 400,000 overnight visitors a year for long distance family biking vacations, let's say. They will be um, within one mile is 8% of the state's population. Within five miles, there is 24% of the state's population. Within 10 miles, there is 64% of the state's population. This is impressive. There's going to be 200 plus million dollars a year in economic impacts and climate change impacts and other impacts that are, are astounding. So what do you think that knowing the 200 million or more dollar benefit of this trail per year is going to do for getting it finished? I think it's going to be a call to action. I believe that they're, going, they're really going to take it on especially with climate change impacts here. You know, these are projects that reintroduce bikes into communities. The bike-friendly communities in Massachusetts didn't just snap a finger and became bike-friendly. No, there was usually a bike path there that made it possible for people to feel comfortable. The trail network here was the impetus for that cultural shift that made it possible to have a normal community where where automobiles stop for pedestrians and bikes. The best way to change the culture of motorists to make it feel safer to bike is to have bike paths nearby that intersect many roads. The big seed for where all these rail trails are now all under development all around the region here, all across New England, is the Cape Cod Rail Trail. That was built by the State Parks Agency in the 70s, was a newfangled idea 
on Cape Cod, where there was known a lot of people going here for their vacations. And here's a fun thing to do for a bike ride on a car-free path. Well, that idea was, was so stunning to visitors to Cape Cod that, of course, they took that idea back to their hometown. So now we're at the culmination. This is the end. There doesn't get any bigger than this. If you can reassemble this corridor, it's the longest, most complicated rail-to-trail project, probably within 500 miles, probably across the country. There's nothing like this in terms of connections to huge throngs of population to have completely um, beautiful, beautiful places in Central Mass that many people have never even heard of with an anchor here at the Western end where people have heard of. And then you have a connection to one of the 17 to 20 other trails is called New Haven and Northampton Canal Greenway. It used to be having 16 different names. Can you imagine that an 84 mile trail, the longest interstate trail probably in the Northeast with all these different names, how do you market that? You can't. And that was part of the problem. And especially in Massachusetts, we have starting at the North is the, uh, was the Manhattan Rail Trail. Then below that is the Southampton Greenway, now resurrected by the way. Then below that is Westfield's Columbia Greenway. Then there's the South Southwick Rail Trail. And then there's there was like six or 10 other names in Connecticut. Well, they're all coming under one umbrella, the New Haven and Northampton Canal Greenway with all their little individual local names. Yes, we're not gonna make them take them down, but they're there. And, uh, and guess what's also special about this? Well, New Haven, Northampton and Boston, Big L, they all have scheduled rail service. Guess what? You can bike the trail over several days with your little family, stay in bed and breakfast or small local bed and breakfast or small hotels along the way or tenting campgrounds. Then you can take the train back to point A. Wasn't that nice? Who'd have thunk of that, right? Craig Delapena, this is huge, as you know, and you've been working on it for ever. 28 years. We don't have any kids or grandkids to dote over, and I'm not old enough to golf. So this is what I do, and I make trouble along the way. <laughs> Thanks for making trouble. What started in Cape Cod is, and is now spreading across Massachusetts, um, it will maybe spread across the rest of the country. Oh, yeah, this is big. This is big. 104 miles of car-free trail. I love that. It's going to be a reason to visit Massachusetts and New England. It goes two-thirds of the way across the state. Is that correct? Yeah. Wow. Great. Well, up next is uh, Stacy Rendecker, who has been on the show in the past, and she's given us kind of a rebuttal, a different way to look at bike lane implementation in San Francisco. Valencia Street, that's her street. She's very connected to it. And here's what she had to say. Great. So Stacy Rendecker, I wanted to talk to you about Valencia Street's bike lane. How you feel about it? Well, I guess you heard the interview. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Uh, I thought that Aditya especially made some good points. But as a whole, I just find the tactic of compromising on something that we know is not safe, we know will be misused, we know has been abandoned, has been dangerous in other parts of the 
country in, in a place that has many more things going on. It is, it's complete and utter nonsense. Uh, we're guinea pigs and I'm tired of them trying things out on us. How about we try out some things on the motorists? You know, why don't we try taking some space from them, seeing how it goes? Don't do a study, just take the space away and give it to people. That's really what we should be doing. This is not taking away space from, from motorists? Uh, n- no, um, they're, they're putting in center running bike lanes, something that is rarely ever done. Anytime it's been done to positive effect is on long stretches, uh, much like an express lane on a highway where you have no chance of exiting. Like you're skipping the next five exits or whatever. That's how center running lanes can work. Is there somewhere that it works, a center running uh, bike lane? Yeah. I mean, there. so there is one in Barcelona. I actually wrote it and it, it works because there aren't that many things that you'd want to get off for. Like it's cool to like just, oh, I, I'm just going to get off at the next intersection because um, it's along the beach. It doesn't. You know, it doesn't really matter. Whereas when you're talking about Valencia, there's a shop, there's a restaurant, there's a bar, there's a blah, blah, blah. There, like, there's a, a school, there's a church. There's. <laughs> it is so jam-packed with things that people want to go to and shoving the people on bikes that are, are easiest. They don't have to look for parking. They just get off their bike, put it on the curb, lock it up. To take that away from the people that are most can most easily access the the businesses, it makes absolutely no sense to how a street like that would function. So you said Aditya in the interview we did last week made some good points. What were they? Well, he was looking at it from the Safe Street Rebel point of view in terms of action and how you might capitalize on this, and and also that when and if this were ever pedestrianized, that we would want center running lanes for bikes because essentially bikes are the big, heavy, fast thing on a pedestrianized street. They should be corralled when you're talking about bikes versus pedestrians. But corralling the vulnerable people into the middle is all I can picture are like, the wolves circling, you know, or the sharks around the chum in the middle. That's what it feels like. And not, not only that, all I can picture is you have a, uh, you know, two-way bike lane. You know, this is one of our busiest bike streets in San Francisco. And so you will have people passing each other. In some ways it's fine, but you typically don't have cars on both sides of you separated only by the occasional soft hit post and these bike curbs. I mean, if somebody bobbles, if somebody makes a wrong move, imagine you get spooked because a car is beside you and you kind of falter and you bump the person that is oncoming on another bike and then they falter and they fall over. They get caught on this stupid bike curb or bus curb thing that they could carry into the meeting to show them. That's how tough it is. It's not concrete. What meeting? The SFMTA board meeting. Tom McGuire lifted that thing and put it on the railing. Who's Tom McGuire? 
He is the head of our streets division. He's showing here, this is the thing that we're going to have delineating the outside of the lanes, this like rubbery slab. We'll have a bunch of those. And then you can put posts in every now and then, but they're just slightly better than soft hit posts. But we're basically talking about people on bikes could be like getting in the way of other people on bikes they they could cause that person to fall into traffic and so the drivers didn't even you know necessarily do anything wrong but they're there and we're in the middle so you've been vocal i guess is one way of describing it about valencia yeah for a long time oh yeah yeah valencia should be for the people valencia That's- it is the prime spot for a pedestrianized street in this city. For a while you were, I think, tweeting out, was it crashes, certain statistics pretty regularly? Oh yeah. I mean, anytime that something happens on Valencia, I will say, hey, how about this? You know, it is the street in the city that has the most bike crashes in all of San Francisco. They think they're helping us by putting us in the middle so that we don't have to deal with double parked cars anymore. So now in theory, if someone wanted to double park on Valencia street, they would be impacting the motorists, not the people on bikes. That's what just a minute was born out of. A motorist is blocking the bike lane. So we would run out and make a safe path around that double park car by standing up in front of the oncoming cars so that the cyclists, the scooters, they could keep going through. You would say just a minute? Yeah, yeah. We're just going to be here just a minute. We tell the drivers just a minute. Everything that a driver would say for their rationalization of being parked there, that's what we parrot back to the drivers to hold them off. You know, like, oh, it's just going to be a minute. She's on a very important call. It'll be just a minute. He's just picking up something. It'll be just a minute. And seeing the motorists fuming over this, whereas we on bikes are just supposed to swallow it. It was hilarious. Because somebody has to swerve out into traffic if somebody's blocking the bike lane, you actually shut down the lane of traffic. Yes. So that they could safely get around somebody who was parked for just a minute. Yes. And a point of contention within our group was always, I would do it for cars that were parking. Some would say, well, they're just parking, you know? And I'm like, they're blocking the bike lane with a car. It's the same premise. Yes, we know it'll be over much sooner, but I would be all up for running to stand and make sure that someone on a bike didn't get cut off or threatened or endangered by the cars. It's sort of like civil obedience (laughs) in a way, taking, just obeying the law to an extreme. This is the way it is. So we have to act in accordance. I love that civil obedience. Yes. (laughs) Like people Um, talk about, yeah. If you take the lane and stop at stop signs, how, how crazy it makes drivers. Well, luckily I'm one who almost never does that. I mean, I, I always look both ways, but I am well known for my Idaho stops. Even the advocates who are, I don't know if you could say they approve of the lane, but they're going along with it and think it's a, a step forward. 
like Robin Pam and Zach Lipton and, you know, who have fought for some really important things in San Francisco. I don't understand what they're thinking of. Uh, Admittedly, there are stretches of Valencia that are wider where I could see it like, oh, it may not be terrible, but there are ones that are so narrow that it's just like, this is absolute madness expecting this to be pulled off. You have these wonderful shared spaces where the restaurants were able to build and extend their footprint into the parking spaces, having people eating and drinking, musicians playing instead of freaking parked cars. That's what we want. We want more of that. And then you have parking in in the spaces in between where there was always parking before, but between those shared spaces. Currently, you have the bike lane, and then you have car lane of traffic, and then you have another car lane of traffic going the opposite direction, repeat all the way over to the curb. Now they're picking up the bike lanes, they're putting it in the middle, they're putting the lamest of protection. Like if they were going to put down K rail, fine, I, I can I can deal with that. Like Jersey barriers, those big, huge concrete things that you see um, essentially on highways when they're doing construction. Mm-hmm. Then you can put us in the middle. That's fine. I mean, not really, but I I would consider that an acceptable, like, all right, fine, whatever. We have to do something. I mean, doesn't it seem like the advocates who support this are envisioning that people will will realize that they need to do something like that and put real barriers? No, no, they're not going to. They will not do. I mean, it would take up so much space in these narrow passages that I'm talking about. I don't know that you have room for the footprint of the cave rail still enough for a bi-directional bike lane and two lanes traffic and whatever, like something would have to give. It's just not enough. Um, and I think the thing that is frustrating is we know what the answer is. We know what this, I mean, the fact that San Francisco does not have one pedestrianized merchant corridor. I mean, that's crazy. New York did it, but we can't. We're the second most densely populated city in the United States. This has so much going on here. It's nonsense that we can't pedestrianize some of this. We've seen this done all over the world. It's been a tremendous success. And yet somehow we're just so special. We cannot. We have to have cars run over every flat surface in this city. But now you have the great walkway that you have. uh, Weekends only. JFK is 1.8 miles inside of a park. The entirety of Central Park has no cars. We got 1.8 miles. This is unacceptable um, that we would take Valencia and we would say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We can still have cars on there. Well, why don't we just put cars back on JFK? Why don't we put them back on the Great Walkway all the time? Huh? Why don't we do that? No, we need to have pedestrianized spaces. We need this on the Embarcadero. We need this on Valencia. We need this on a dozen other streets in San Francisco. It would make for a better city. And we need to push back on the car supremacy that we have, well, in the entire nation, but very much so in San Francisco. I guess people were thinking this is the best that they're going to get, that they're not going to get pedestrianized streets. Why don't you go back and tell the stop to Kindermord people that in the 70s? The Kindermord, the dead kids in the Netherlands. Yeah, Uh, the Netherlands um, wasn't always the Netherlands. In the 70s, late 60s, early 70s, they were the number one country for child deaths by 
motor vehicles, highest percentage of children killed by cars. And the people said, no more, we're not doing this. And it was awful. They were fighting. The motorists were terrible. They were clinging to their steering wheels. They couldn't imagine it being different. It was very contentious. They were doing die-ins. They were laying in the street. They were going to their elected officials' homes. They were going to the, you know, they were giving public comment and showing up and in en masse over and over again until finally they forced them to a vote. And it was very narrow and yet it passed. And they started doing things differently. That was 50 years ago. We don't have 50 years to fix this. We have been killing people at an absurd rate in this country. We stated Vision Zero as a goal in this city almost 10 years ago. It has only gotten worse. We need to do things differently. And this is not different. This is just another flavor of the same that we've been served and it's got to stop. All right. Thank you for coming on Bike Talk, Stacy. again. Hey, thanks for having me, Nick. I promise I get very happy when when we're actually biking, when we actually get the good things. But man, it, it is very angering to see the stagnation and to see everyone just giving everything up for cars. I agree. And uh, so hopefully we'll have you back on and happy at some point. I would love that. I look forward to it. I love Stacy's passion. I mean, she's just so committed to, you know, making San Francisco a more livable city. And it's already a great livable city. But, you know, these ideas that cars have just taken over so many spaces and she's fighting for it. What I worry about is, is she throwing the baby out with the bathwater by going against this center bike lane? What's the quote? Um, Perfection is the enemy of the good. Is that what it is? Yeah, but is an activist's job to accept compromise or should some people not? Right. I have always believed in this fight, you know, we have to go big. You know, you have to go go big or go home, so to speak. But sometimes there's room for an incremental approach to things. You know, different bike lanes function differently. And while I don't ride on many center bike lanes, I think I'd rather have that than no no bike lane. Me too. But can I give a Martin Luther King quote, even though it's not Martin Luther King Day? Extremism in defense of liberty is no vice. Moderation in pursuit of justice is no virtue. I, I guess that's why he was so great, right? Yeah. We talked about uh, civil obedience in, right. in this interview. Um, but you see this over and over again, like with our uh, interview with OSAC. Our Streets Action Committee. That, right. And the process. And their, their fight for equity as we you know build our bicycle infrastructure. And that that's an important fight. Yeah. But again, do we do we not accept bike lanes in in upscale neighborhoods or bike infrastructure because that is not equitable or because that's not as needed as badly? I I know that that's not exactly what the fight is, but I just worry that again we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Well, a lot of times also, you know, there's reluctance to have bike lanes in the neighborhoods that need it most on the high right. injury network because of gentrification. Well, up next, we have a great interview. It's with a writer who envisions a car-free future, which is, yeah. you know, a dream. It's also an interesting continuation of what we're talking about now. Is cars the problem or is capitalism the deeper problem, which really gets into perfect and merely good. So this is a writer, 
who wrote an article in salon.com about the post-car future and the inequality of car ownership, two different articles, Matthew Roja and an author of a study cited in that article, John Rennie, who's director of the Center for Urban and Environmental Solutions and a professor in the Department of Urban and Regional Planning at Florida Atlantic University. Great, let's hear it. So we're here today with Matthew Roja and John Rennie. Matthew has written a couple of really good articles for Salon. One of them is, is a post-car future actually possible? Experts say yes. And the other one is wealth inequality spirals out of control. Many Americans can no longer afford to drive. In the one about wealth inequality and Americans not being able to afford driving, Matthew cites a study by John Rennie and another author. I think it's great that we can get both John and Matthew here. Um, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank thank you. I'm excited to be on this podcast. Yeah, it's great to have you. And John, you've had a long time being car free, and now maybe you know circumstances don't allow for that, but you're studying it, car freedom. Unfortunately, I live in South Florida, which is very car dependent, and I need a car because you know there's a lot of trips I can't get to on a bike, unfortunately. I am coming at this from a very different vantage point. I wrote those two articles from the vantage point of a person with a hand-eye coordination disability who, because of said disability, has never and likely will never be able to drive. And that is what inspired me to write these articles. When it comes to bicycling, I can do it. I have done it in the past. It is also more difficult to do because of the disability, but Unlike driving, it is something that I believe with enough practice, if I were to get in shape and do it often enough, I could actually use as an alternative. The larger issue is that we live in a society which has its entire transportation infrastructure built around the use of automobiles. Um, Is the reason that you don't use a bike because of your uh, physical needs, or is it partially because of the land uses and the streets in the uh, neighborhood and community that you live in? Well, I live in Eastern Pennsylvania. I will be totally candid. I have not tried to use a bicycle to get around. When I say that it would not meet most of my commuting needs, it's because if I need to go to New York City or Philadelphia, I'm not doing that with a bicycle. And this is what I stressed in those articles. The emphasis on automobiles in our culture is a symptom of how in late stage capitalism, everything benefits the wealthy. The fact that we use cars as the primary means of transportation means that highways by and large benefit the wealthy because they're the people most likely to be able to use cars. Our entire real road infrastructure primarily benefits the affluent And as you identified in one of your studies, people who do not have access to money are less able to access vehicles. And because they are less able to access vehicles, they have fewer economic opportunities. They have fewer social opportunities. In general, their lives are severely inhibited. Obsession with cars in our culture is both a symptom of and an exacerbating factor in these larger class inequalities. In terms of just like general average, you know, Americans, anybody who's not in poverty, you know, because we've organized ourselves around a car and a really good book that really highlights this is a book called Car Country. 
It's a fantastic book. I highly recommend it. It talks about how the automobile has become such a ingrained part of, of our lives in, in everything that we do, you know, from, you know, zoning regulations uh, to, uh, you know, the way we build our, our communities and, and, and the impacts on the environment and all, the, uh, all that kind of stuff. And I think most Americans look at the car as, you know, the ability to have freedom in our lives. Um, you know, that's why older people don't want to give up the car because it's like literally giving up freedom, right? And the, the, and the reason is because we haven't done a good job building a, a communities and, and regions that give people alternatives. To your point, Matt, I think that those who are in poverty, those who genuinely cannot afford an automobile, um, yes, that that is true. But I think, you know, for, for what we see in college is that the moment kids can get to the point where they can save up enough money to buy something, it's a car because it gives them freedom. Not owning a car is both a burden and a superpower. I've already elaborated on how it is a burden. And one extra point I would make is it requires you to constantly ask people for favors. It puts you in a position where you are the one who needs the ride. And even though, at least in my case, I always offer to pay for gas and try to be insistent when they decline, there still is a degree to which you are imposing. And that does create a psychological issue. However, there are also advantages to not owning a car. I was telling Nick earlier, it's a strange superpower because I get to save money. And I don't think the use of the word superpower is hyperbolic in this context, especially for anyone who has dealt with any financial burden associated with owning a car. Uh, there is immense expense associated with automotive ownership. It is incredible how much money People I know told me they need to spend on insurance, on maintenance, on parking tickets that wind up being accrued. And I have, by contrast, a spotless record when it comes to unpaid parking tickets. I have no DUIs and an utterly clean conscience when it comes to any traffic accident related matters. It is in some ways a gift, and I don't want to diminish that also I have a much smaller carbon footprint than many other people because, and this is what made me think of the article about what a world would be like without cars. If hypothetically, let's say we entered a, a classic 1960s Twilight Zone episode and all of the cars in the world suddenly vanished overnight, in terms of the health of the planet, that would be at least in the short term, a very good thing. I like the title of the article, Is a Postcar Future Actually Possible? And how could we get there? You know, I think a lot of people thought the future would be flying cars and not so many people may have thought the future might be no cars. John, you are director of the Center for Urban Environmental Solutions and a professor in the Department of Urban and Regional Planning at Florida Atlantic University. You did this study and the... Last line of your abstract, I have it here. Policymakers should consider differences in socioeconomic factors and try to provide more equitable access to sustainable mobility across different socioeconomic groups. And, and actually, that's a really good segue is what I was thinking about responding <clears throat> to Matt's article about imagining a world without cars. One thing that was really impactful for me 
is when I was a part of Bike Easy, which is a bicycle advocacy organization in New Orleans, uh, when I lived in New Orleans uh, for 10 years before Florida, um, I, I chaired the um, this the city of New Orleans had a sustainable transportation um, advisory committee to the city council. And we brought folks together, you know, from like AARP was one of the, the, the big organizations that was very interested in all this work we were doing. And they brought us out to just a neighborhood in New Orleans. And we were with a big group of people and they brought out a wheelchair and we all had to get in the wheelchair and navigate the sidewalks and getting around. And that was super eye-opening to me and very impactful because we often don't put ourselves in other people's situations or shoes to see what life, what is life like if you have to navigate sidewalks or bus stops or crossing streets, you know, just using a wheelchair. Or if you're blind, you know, sometimes that folks will put blindfolds on people and, you know, have them, you know, walk down a street or try to cross a street and see what that's like. And I think we ought to have all policymakers and even folks who work in planning departments and transportation agencies, we, we ought to get them, you know, we do these what they call roundtable exercises, um, you know, to think about or tabletop exercises, think about like what happens if a major hurricane hits? Well, how would we respond? We should do tabletop exercises to imagine what life is like, you know, with with without cars and how can we improve life for those people who can't afford cars or those people who can't use cars. I mean, we have an, a booming aging population and increasingly more and more people as they get older will not be able to drive a car. Unfortunately, policies and decisions are often made by able-bodied people who don't always think about what life is like for those who are not able to drive for whatever reason that might be. What does it look like then to provide more equitable access to sustained mobility across different socioeconomic groups? Or what will it look like? I mean, I guess part of it is involving, you know, not just able-bodied people of a certain socioeconomic demographic. I can tell you, it looks like vacation. One of the things I ask people when I give a, a lecture, you know, in a room of a, of a big group of people, is I say to them, I say, I want you to think about the last time you took a vacation, not to a ski resort or to a national park or to a beach, right? But the last time you decided to go to a city for vacation, where did you go? Um, what did you want to do? And I say, how many of you rented a car? Very few hands go up. How many of you got a hotel room in a place where you could walk to things or where you could get on the bus or, you know, take the train somewhere? The majority of people raise their hands. So I say to them, I said, why is it that we save up our money? And, you know, if, we, if we're not going to a beach or to the mountains or some beautiful natural spot, if we go to a city somewhere, whether it's New York or San Francisco or somewhere in Europe, for example, we don't want to rent a house or a hotel in the suburbs where we have to like drive around everywhere like we do in our normal day-to-day -day lives. So if we can recognize that on vacation, we want that type of lifestyle, why can't we have that lifestyle the other 47 weeks or 50 weeks of the year? The data shows that it's not just life on vacation. It's what folks who you know have the ability to pay 
for walkable communities. And when I say walkable communities, I'm talking about bikeable communities. I'm talking about transit friendly communities. Um, but when you look at home values or, or apartment prices in these walkable neighborhoods in any community, you know, from the north to the south to the east to the west, you know, um, people pay a premium to live in these places. Um, I, I think we need to use capitalism to build communities that are so successful. And we're seeing it in every state in the country. These walkable, you know, new urbanist communities are very expensive and they're expensive because they're desirable. That's the kind of place people want to live. The reason they're expensive is because they're limited in supply and there's a high demand to live in these places. And so we need to work with capitalism, in my opinion, and of course, you know, whatever other mechanisms possible through government policy to try to encourage the market to build more of these, to try to encourage more, you know, affordable housing subsidies from, from local, state, and federal government to try to encourage more affordable housing in these particular locations. So I'm optimistic. I, I think that um, the Great Recession in 2008 was a big paradigm shift in, in capitalism, where before the Great Recession, uh, most developers were not interested in building walkable communities. Since 2012, when we started to come out of that Great Recession, I see uh, most developers really working hard to try to find opportunities to develop walkable communities because they're highly desirable and, and therefore profitable. I do not think that this problem can be addressed through capitalism. The reason America has not been able to wean itself off of automotive dependence is because of capitalism. I think as long as we live in a society where decisions about social policy are ultimately determined by who can make a profit, we are going to create a world that benefits those with the most profits. When you look at the formative period in America's history in terms of transportation infrastructure development, the mid-20th century, on a macro level, the most influential policymakers were those who helped draft the Interstate Highway Act. On a micro level, urban developers liked to emulate uh, thinkers such as Robert Moses, who very heavily preferred the use of automobiles and turned the New York City metropolitan area into the giant traffic congested mess that it is today. And unfortunately, people all over the world followed his example, and he was brought in from Brazil to Japan to help design their cities to be equally terrible. The Am I saying that there aren't ways to make the capitalist system create incentives for mass transit? Of course not. But even when cities do move in the right direction, there are always the contrary forces that for their own greedy reasons want to stress automotive use that will be pulling in the opposite direction. The ultimate solution is to create an economic structure that does not prioritize who can make the most money. It's not necessarily kind of a black or white conversation about, you know, greedy developers and investors, of which I am one of because I invest in walkable communities. I'm trying to direct my investments um, to invest in, in walkable communities. The dependence on cars is a symptom and the deeper disease is capitalism. The underlying ailment is the fact that we have an economic system that does not work, 
that is ecologically unsustainable and that creates massive inequality, which guarantees that the vast majority of the population will never realize its potential. That problem is symptomatized by our obsession with cars. The fact, because the obsession with cars helps contribute to climate change. The obsession with cars, as your study noted, works to the disadvantage of people who are poor. It works to the disadvantage of people of color. Um, it is a symptom of the problem, but it is not the cause of the problem. If we were to magically make cars disappear, but we still lived in a capitalist society, we would just screw things up in some other way. I think the point is is not the, the, the juxtaposition between capitalism uh, versus you know some other form of economic system. Um, you have to have leadership within both the public and the private sector that recognize the value of a multimodal transportation system. There's two fundamental transportation modes. Uh, the, the, the most fundamental is walking because every single trip, whether you're on a bike or a car or a train, it ultimately starts or ends with walking. Paying attention to safe walking is so important. And then Biking to me is next to walking. It is the most sustainable mode of transportation that we have. And it's the most affordable mode of transportation that we have aside from walking, right? It doesn't really require a lot of money to get a bike. It doesn't require a lot of money to maintain a bike. Um, and we've seen in societies, you know, across Asia, across Europe, and in, even in a lot of cities in the US that have invested in infrastructure that cycling can really boom, right? But you have to build the infrastructure. And for whatever reason, we haven't built a lot of biking infrastructure. I can kind of joke around a little bit and tell you as an urban planner, we like to place the blame not on the capitalists, but on the traffic engineers. And I have a lot of good friends that are traffic engineers um, that are actually helping to solve problems to make cities more bikeable. But our codes, our standards on how we design streets and roadways by and large, have made cycling very, very unsafe. And if it's unsafe and, and scary to do, people are just not going to do it. Thank you for your study and your work and your thoughts today. Now, Madeline Bonsma Fisher talks to Farad Golizada about permanently removing cars from Toronto's biggest park. I'm with Faraz Golizada, and we're talking about uh, car-free High Park and a vision of a different future for High Park in Toronto. For our listeners who aren't familiar with Toronto, can you paint a little picture of High Park and the surrounding area? Uh, yeah, High Park is in the west end of Toronto. It's almost 400 acres, 399 in total. It's Toronto's biggest and busiest park. It's quite popular, obviously, and it's a protected park. There's lots of endangered plants and home to lots of wildlife. It's, it's a sanctuary in the city, essentially. Do you see issues with the way High Park is currently set up? The park is serving too many purposes. And the, the big one that's uh, really preventing people from enjoying the park fully is how much of the park is dedicated to let, you know traffic, how much of it has roads that cars are using, um, most of which are speeding way above the 20 kilometer per hour speed limit. And how much of it is dedicated to parking? All that space should be used for pedestrians, for people to enjoy the park. 
back in 2020, the city of Toronto took the, the bold step of closing the park to cars on weekends. And it's been an incredible success. And it's so great to see the park so busy and so full of life and to see people have space to really enjoy it fully. So right now it's possible to drive, like actually to cut through the park. Is that right? Like drive right from the top through at the bottom? Yes, you can drive from the top to the bottom. You can drive from the bottom to the top. It's There's a lot of cut through traffic because of this. People are really abusing the roads in High Park and not really using them to access the park itself, but to bypass other streets in the city as a thoroughfare, essentially. And there have been some, uh, some incidents where there's conflict between pedestrians and cyclists. And as a result, Toronto police started giving tickets to cyclists in High Park. You know, their own studies show that the real issue is, you know, the speed of vehicles. That's the real danger. And the High Park Movement Strategy recorded speeds and showed that the average speed is nearly double the posted speed limit. And yet here they are ticketing cyclists. And the issue, it's like, yes, there, there you know, clearly was an issue with conflict between cyclists and pedestrians in the park. But that is something that can be addressed through design. Um, right now, the issue is that you have road space that is being shared by three different groups of people, cyclists, drivers, and pedestrians. And it's hard to design a road space that can accommodate all three of them. If you eliminate cars, it's you'll have a lot more space to give cyclists the space they need to enjoy themselves, for pedestrians to have the space they need to enjoy themselves. And you can create these solutions to correct these issues. But as long as you have those three different modes, then you're going to run into these problems. Meanwhile, while this was happening, there was an incident where a police SUV crashed into a cyclist. Is that right? <laughs> yes, yes, um, that's true. Apparently the sun was in his eyes, <laughs> the, the police officer says. And it's funny because he also rolled through a stop sign. They were ticketing cyclists for not stopping at stop signs. And here's an officer that hit a cyclist because he went through a stop sign. So it wasn't a very good look for the city. It wasn't a good look for Toronto police. And I hope they stop this actions. It's very aggressive and everyone knows what the real danger is. And, you know, they're clearly sticking their head in the sand and not addressing it. While also this is all going on, there were some incidents on Parkside Drive next to High Park where two pedestrians were killed. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That was um, over a year and a half ago. Um, residents on the street had been advocating for safety improvements on Parkside, some of them for over 10 years, and nothing was done until those two innocent people were killed. Since then, they put a speed camera, and that speed camera has been handing out thousands and thousands of tickets. It's generated $2.3 million in revenue for the city, and it's continuing to do so. And, and here, we, here is that street right beside Hyde Park, going north-south on the, the east side of Hyde Park, and yet police are in the park ticketing cyclists for going 26 in a 20 zone. Meanwhile, drivers are regularly going 60, 70, 80 in a 40 zone. So, you know, try to make sense of that if you can. The city has proposed a few different options for the future of High Park. Can you talk about what those options are and what you are advocating for? Strategy number one was to make the car, make the park car free. Strategy number two was to keep it the way it is now, which is on weekdays, it'll be um, not car free. And then on weekends and on special holidays or special days, it would be car free. So that's essentially what they're doing right now. Um, strategy number three is to close some roads to cars and keep other ones open. 
And then strategy number four is to go back to the pre-COVID where, you know, it's a free-for-all. The park's open to cars all the time, 24-7. And I was very curious to see what the results would be because, you know, my family and I, we use the park regularly and we obviously were loving the car-free days. But you know, Toronto is a big city. You never know how other people feel and think. So when the results came out, we were very pleasantly surprised to see how overwhelming the support was for Strategy One, making the park car-free 24-7. It was the clear runaway winner. Um, it, it wasn't even really close to the other strategies. Uh, just to prove that point, Strategy One had 44% of people strongly supporting it, I believe. The other three strategies had 44% combined. So you would have to add the support for the other three strategies together just to get to the amount of support that strategy one had. So it was it was quite definitive and you know made us very hopeful for what was to come. Do you think that this will be the favorite strategy when the city decides later this spring? I don't believe so. So uh, I was in an, a stakeholder meeting with the High Park Movement Strategy and some other stakeholders and was quite shocked to hear that their emerging direction is Strategy 3, which did not have all that much support. And it just seemed very strange to me that they're going in this direction when they took two years, engaged with over 17,000 people, you know, submitted all these reports, shared all these reports that spoke so glowingly about the car-free weekends about how much people are enjoying them, about how people with disabilities are saying it provides them with more safety, with more space. It was the preferred strategy for people with disabilities and for families with young children. So it just seemed like such a no-brainer to go in that direction. They took the time to study it. The people told them what they liked about it. And yet here we are going with a strategy that doesn't have nearly as much support, actually has more people not supporting it than it has supporting it. And that's why we created Car Free High Park uh, in order to push back on this and to have the people heard and to create a space, one of the few spaces in Toronto that is car free and to expand on it because that's what the people want. That's what we're ready for. So if people want to contribute to this campaign, what, what can they do? Carfreehighpark.org. We have a petition on Action Network going and an email campaign. The petition has over a thousand signatures in just three weeks. So, you know, just further proving the amount of support there is for car-free spaces. There's an open house coming up where the city is going to present a refined strategy, whatever that means. We already, you know, started our pushback and it seems like we're getting some change, but we don't know how much yet. We'll find out on April 3rd when the open house is launched. And we make these grand promises about meeting climate goals and about meeting vision zero goals. And, and here we are with an opportunity to make what should be a no brainer decision. You know, if we can't get cars out of a park, then how are we gonna meet those goals? Like we have no hope of meeting those goals if we have to put up a fight just to get cars out of a park. What changes would you like to see on Parkside? Um, the changes are a simple one right now. Parkside, 90% of it is dedicated to cars and trucks and only 10% to pedestrians on a, a single narrow sidewalk. And that seems so unequitable. The road needs to be designed in such a way that it gets people outside, gets people enjoying themselves, provides them with safety. We need to divide that road space so that it's more equitable, give space for cyclists so they can travel safely. 
the cars and trucks will still have the majority of the road space. They're still going to have most of the road, but you'll build a road that supports everybody and creates a safe road for everybody, including the drivers. The two people that were killed were sitting in their car when they were killed. So it's not safe for anyone. Even if you're in a car, it's not safe to be on Parkside. So let's fix that. Let's make it safe for cyclists. Let's make it safe for pedestrians. Let's make it safe for drivers. And then let's make sure everyone gets to their destination safely. How do you like to get around the city? Um, my preferred mode of travel is definitely by foot or by bike, you know, with a, a family with two young kids. Sometimes I'm forced to take the car, but uh, as much as possible, we like to, to get out and, and stay out. So foot and bike and any other mode of travel in that regard. Can you tell me about a moment when you were out and about on foot or bike and you felt joy? Oh, absolutely. Pretty much every time. I, I love being outside. I'm, I'm so excited that, you know, the weather's starting to warm up and spring is, is finally here. Hopefully it'll start to really start to feel like spring soon. And there isn't a time where I don't go outside and, and really enjoy myself on a nice day. So pretty much every time I step out the door and it's nice outside, it's a good day. Wonderful. Thanks so much for talking with me. Thank uh, it's you. been great to hear about, about what you're working on. And I really hope that Car Free High Park is a success. Thank you very much for talking with me. And uh, yeah, thank you for the well wishes. And we're going to continue this push and hopefully we'll get there very soon. Stay tuned. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Get on your bike. Sit on the seat. Put your feet on the pedals. And ride it all around.